The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. The good thing about him is his constant metamorphosis. He does re rebear himself like the phoenix, and uh, what the next incarnation will be, I don't know. Well, you seem to have me figured out as the, the next reincarnation for me is going to be Charles Manson. Well, you let yourself... Why don't you read what you wrote? You let yourself in for it, and I will tell you, I'll give a little background here, that Mailer has We written... all know that I, that I stabbed my wife oh. years ago. We do know that, Gore. You were playing on that. Now, come oh, I'd love to forget about it. Well, no, you, you don't want to forget about it. You're a liar and a hypocrite. You were playing on it. But that wasn't playing a liar or a hypocrite. I wasn't going to talk about it. The fact of the matter is that people who read the New York Review of Books know perfectly well, all, they know all about it. Uh, and and uh, and it's your subtle little way of, of doing it. You know, the New Yorker Oh, I'm beginning to see what bothers you now. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the point. Are, are you ready to apologize? <clears throat> I would apologize if, uh, if it hurts your feelings. Of course I would. No, it hurts my sense of intellectual pollution. Well, I must say, as, I mean, uh, as an the, expert, you should know uh, about I that. I would like to... <laughs> yes, well, I've had to smell uh, your works from time to time, and that has helped me to become an in- expert on intellectual pollution. Yes. Yeah, well... Let's, uh, I was going to say, I was not going to... insult each other, not only in public, but you, you act as if you were in private. That's the odd way. It's the art I of say, television, isn't it's it? It's very odd that you act so, you act as if you were the only people here. Aren't we? They are here. He's here. I'm here. And I'm becoming very, very bored. My... <laughs> There's never been a show like that. It's quite possible it will never be surpassed in terms of its particular terms. Uh, here were three literary figures, an unlikely thing to entertain viewers in most people's mind, who clashed brilliantly and entertainingly and somewhat bitterly for 90 minutes that was on the edge of one's chair. Norman came on to got Gore Vidal about something he'd written in the New York Review of Books, so the conflict was all there and ready to go. It was tense, it was hard, tough going, it looked like there might be physical violence at one point, or two points, uh, a thing Norman was not un- entirely unfamiliar with. Vidal was just so elegantly eloquent. Once the audience applauded a sentence of Gore's largely because it was so elegantly constructed that it, like a piece of music, it, it created a kind of appreciative thrill. That's Dick Cavett describing the great literary feud between Norman Mailer and Gore Vidal lasted for years and culminated during an episode of The Dick Cavett Show. Actually, there were several culminations to that feud. Our old friend Mike Palindrome, president of the Literature Supporters Club, joins us today for a look at some fighting authors. Wouldn't that be a good name for a sports team? The Fighting Writers? Come on. (laughs) There must be a high school out there looking to 
shed their offensive mascot looking for a new name. The Fighting Writers. You could have, I don't know, Edgar Allan Poe with a pair of boxing gloves as your mascot. Or Virginia Woolf with a set of nunchucks. How about Truman Capote with a set of Chinese throwing stars? I'm Jack Wilson. This is the History of Literature podcast. As you can see, we only deal with facts here. Oh, oh boy. Capote with the throwing stars. You don't get that on NPR, ladies and gentlemen. But let's get back to some actual history. Edgar Allan Poe had several good feuds. Probably the most famous was with fellow writer and critic Thomas Dunn English. And it began when Poe asked to borrow a pistol from English to defend himself against the brother of a poet named Elizabeth Ellet. It seems that Ms. Ellet was trying to get some letters back from Poe. There was a scandal, and the rumors were that Ms. Ellet's letters contained some indiscreet material. Her brother demanded them back to defend her honor. Poe claimed that he had already returned them. The brother made threats. Poe asked English for a pistol. And English suggested that Poe should retract the statements. Poe was so agitated, he provoked English into a fistfight. English punched him, cutting Poe's face with his ring. And then things get murky. Poe later claimed that he gave English a flogging he'd never forget. English said that that never happened. In any case, they started trading attacks in print, calling each other names, basing characters on one another, and so on. Poe sued for libel and won, and on it went. Why is this so interesting? Writers trying to live in the world, anything that gets them out of the house and shows us a bit of their character, especially when they're outraged or passionately out of control, is interesting. And it plays out in their works. In Poe's case, the cask of Amontillado is based on this feud, and Poe preserved for all time a caricature of Thomas Dunn English that has long survived our general awareness of the man himself. The revenge of a first-rate author can be very sweet. Poe had another feud with a different author, Rufus Griswold, who wrote a book about Poe, the first biography and the only biography for years. Griswold hated Poe, savaged him and his character in the biography. There were a lot of misconceptions that arose because of that book. So even someone punching up can have an effect on literary reputations. Is that why authors care? Is that why they're so sensitive and combative? Or are they just so immersed in their work that they can't bear to see it criticized? You'd defend your infant child from an attack, right? And for an author, isn't a book just as vulnerable in a way? Something must explain this behavior. Let's find out. Mike Palindrome and Great Literary Feuds today on the History of Literature. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. So how many of your feuds got physical? Um, the spitting count? <laughs> so we have the same one on our list. Um, yeah, you know, I, I was kind of, of of two minds about it because the first thing mm-hmm. I thought was that I would penalize ones that, that came to blow or people came to blows or something because I thought the best thing about these literary feuds is that these uh-huh. are writers, and their their choice of weapon is words, and they yeah. have these these really witty remarks. And but then after you go through feud after feud, where it's basically somebody writes a, a negative review of somebody else, and so they start they insult them back. Mm-hmm. I really started kind of enjoying the ones where then they encountered each other at a party and, and threw a glass at the at one's head or <laughs> the the physical ones started jumping out at me as being a little more dramatic. Although I have to say that my whole interest in literary feuds, I think all began at Harper Library in the reading room where I was reading the New York Review of Books for the first time and reading the letters in the back of the New York Review of Books. And I think somebody had gotten into it with Tom Stoppard and Tom Stoppard just let him have it. It just, and then you know, you read the next issue and you read the the feeble reply, and then Tom Stoppard comes back again. <laughs> it just made me love these kind of battles of ideas and words when you know a writer is being a little bit petty or a little bit overly sensitive, but is still bringing the force of his or her prose to attack. So, as always, I'll let you take the first pick. Which feud did you take as your number one pick? So, so many of the feuds I have um, are fairly contemporary, uh, but this one uh, goes way back. I, well, you know, a bit back. It's uh, Ernest Hemingway versus Gertrude Stein. Ooh. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, as I looked at some of these feuds, I, I asked myself what was at stake and. Mm-hmm. If it if the feud is between strangers, as the it was the case for a lot of these, it just didn't feel like there was much weight to it. But if it was between friends, mm-hmm. you know, or between kind of like equals, because sometimes, often the feuds were between like a a master, a pupil, or somebody, two people with you know at varying levels of um, stature or fame. Yeah. yeah, you know. But here, we have. Two very good friends mm-hmm. uh, living in Paris, expatriates, and Gertrude Stein was probably 
a little had a little more fame among the literary circle among in the literary circle in Paris at the time, but not much. I mean, mm -hmm. she was struggling with her opus, the making of the Americans. Um, but she certainly knew more people than Hemingway. Right. And the two of them, he would go to her salon and Alex Tolkis Stein's partner would occupy Pauline Hemingway, uh, Ernest's first wife while Ernest and Gertrude talked about books and talked about style, uh, literary style. And, and paintings. Uh, and paintings, right? Mm -hmm. And Hemingway said that he and Gertrude Stein were like brothers. Right. And then they had a falling out. I think a lot of it must have been due to the fact that Hemingway started, his, his books started to sell mm -hmm. and his story started to sell. I think he noted that Stein just didn't have the discipline to re-revise her work. Mm -hmm. And I probably got back to her. And and then Hemingway said something disparaging about Sherwood Anderson, yeah, who was Stein's friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hemingway, he had kind of a nasty part of his character, which was that he, he often disparaged the people who had helped him. Right. I don't know if he couldn't be grateful or, or what it was, but instead of, you know, people that he probably should have looked back at with some fondness and some some appreciation, instead he would just sort of attack them for some flaw or some weakness. And, uh, you know, he did it over and over with, with Fitzgerald and Pound and all kinds of people who had helped him along the way. And I think Stein was in that category. I agree with you, but, you know, as I was looking more into their relationship, I started to formulate a theory that Stein had set him up to hate her. Oh, that, okay. Because Stein, she was so opinionated. You know, mm -hmm. I was coming across stuff where she was saying, um, I hate D.H. Lawrence. I try to read his novels. He's impossible. He's pathetic and preposterous. He writes like a sick man. Hmm. And saying, why do you read Huxley? He's a dead man. He he wasn't dead at the time, but to her, right. he, you know, he seemed dead. And Hemingway said, you, you could never bring up Joyce in Stein's presence. If you brought up Joyce twice, you would not be invited back to her place. <laughs> it was like mentioning, I love this line, He he says, it was like, Hemingway says this. It was like mentioning one general favorably to another general. Mm. Yeah. You know, so, so Stein set this kind of nasty mood in her way. I mean, she, basically she was telling him that you have to have high standards. Yeah. And I guess at some point Hemingway decided that Stein didn't meet his standard. Yeah. And I, I think also she did kind of set herself as, as it's it's not as if she was, helping Hemingway in this sort of humble way and saying, um, well, I'm just modest little old me over here in the corner. Like she was setting herself up as the genius that uh, Hemingway and everyone else could learn from. Yeah. I mean, Hemingway was more than happy to visit the salon until he became too famous. Mm -hmm. So there, there, there's kind of a cliche behavior there, but you know, we see it time and time again. Yeah, that's that that the pupil. I mean, I would say Hemingway was a nominal pupil here, but the pupil becomes big and kills the master. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's a good choice. So I had set out some criteria, and I think you did pretty well on the scores. I actually had that one as my number twelve. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it probably should have been higher. So I put down, I had a win, uh, 100 point scale. And I had 25 points for what I called luminescence or how famous or or important they are. And I really, I, I followed your advice that they had to both be important for it to be a really great feud, you mm-hmm. know, and it, and it couldn't be one-sided. I was really surprised when I was doing research for this, how many people would call it a feud when the other person did, had never even responded. <laughs> you know, just like some negative review or something. They were calling that a feud. And then the next 25 points was for the quality of the feud, how vitriolic or long-lasting. Mm-hmm. 25 points for the stakes. And that could be personal. Like, was it a friendship breaking up or a, a mentor protege uh, that had fallen apart? Or were the stakes, you know, was literature at stake? I sort of favored those over an affair or some other sort of slight. Like if, if two famous authors came to blows because of the Oxford comma, that would be kind of the, the ideal literary feud for the stakes department. And then 25 points were for style. Like when there was really witty remarks or, yeah. uh, you know, that, that, that scored higher. I know Hemingway, he had kind of a nasty story about Gertrude Stein in uh, A Movable Feast. And even though I love that book, it's kind of amazing how many vicious, there's at least three or four really vicious stories that uh, maybe I need to rethink my recommendations of A Movable Feast. Okay, so let me take my number one. I'm glad you left this for me because I just read an entire book about this one. (laughs) <laughs> which is uh, Vladimir Nabokov and Edmund Wilson. Ah, that's And good. there's a great book called The Feud by Alex Beam, and a lot of the stuff I have in here uh, came from The Feud. So I don't know if you... Do you remember Edmund Wilson? Did you encounter him when you were in your Fitzgerald phase? Yeah, he wrote... He was, um, he was a socialist, and he wrote To Finland Station, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he was... He was a classmate of Fitzgerald's, and Fitzgerald always deferred to him as being kind of the literary genius, or the literary, maybe not genius, but the the one who was better at literary criticism, knew more about literature, and just more intelligent. He called him Bunny, which had been his childhood nickname. And Wilson was, you know, the the head of all of these clubs and everything, but then Fitzgerald kind of surpassed him by writing The Great Gatsby. And mm-hmm. Wilson, you know, he always sort of suffered from... Uh, the jealousy that he had for fiction writers. He was a, a critic, and he wrote for The New Yorker, and he wrote for all of these, you know, he made a lot of money writing reviews, and he wrote these books, and he was really esteemed as a man of letters. But then he also would would turn to fiction, and uh, it didn't go so well. And he did have a kind of a bestseller, but it was mainly because he had really pushed the envelope of writing about sex in the 50s, and so for a while, the book was banned. And then when it wasn't banned, it was uh, became a bestseller. But people thought that it had these particularly bad scenes about sex. And I've got some quotes here. John Updike later wrote, uh, There was something dogged and humorless about Wilson's rendition of love. The adjective meaty recurs. And <laughs> another critic, Cyril Connolly, said... The author's sexual descriptions were mechanistic and almost without eroticism and end up achieving a kind of insect monotony. (laughs) 
but yeah, he was sympathetic to Russia. And so through this sort of strange coincidence, he was living across the street from Nabokov's cousin for years. And then Nabokov's cousin wrote him a letter and said, by the way, my, my cousin is a novelist and he's coming to America and I'm hoping that you can help him out and look after him. And that was Vladimir Nabokov, who came from, he had been an emigre, he had left Russia uh, after the Russian Revolution, he had lived in Berlin for, for years and published all of these novels, and he had yet to write Lolita, but he and Wilson came and they became immediate friends. They both had this interest in Russia, although kind of from op opposing sides, and they both had this, obviously, this interest in literature, and they found each other's company really delightful, and they loved to make puns. And so they were they were huge friends for these years, the first few years when Nabokov was in America. Then that's when uh, Wilson wrote his bestseller, which was kind of impinging on Vladimir's turf a little bit, that now the critic was now a novelist and successful, but... But Nabokov had the same issues with the sex scenes. And he wrote a letter to Wilson, and he, he said, um, you know, I found your work to be wonderful. But then he said, the reader derives no kick from the hero's lovemaking. I should have as soon tried to open a sardine can with my penis. Uh, <laughs> which I don't think Wilson ever really forgot, because then Nabokov sent him a draft of Lolita, and... Nabokov said, you know, I'd love to hear what you think. I consider this novel to be my best thing in English. And Wilson read half of it and stopped and then said, I didn't feel like I needed to read anything else. And he wrote, quote, I like it less than anything else of yours that I have read. This was all kind of the background for them, this huge public feud that they ended up having, which was over Nabokov's project to translate Pushkin. <laughs> and it it was this long drawn out um they spent years exchanging you know public letters and and uh essays and just criticism of one another because Nabokov was on this project to translate Pushkin who is kind of famously you know he's the Russian Shakespeare but he's famously untranslatable mm -hmm. and Nabokov had this idea that you needed to translate him in this extremely literal way, but then include a lot of footnotes. So he wound up with a 200-page poem, but it came out in an edition that was 1,900 pages long and in tiny font. And it had 800 pages of commentary or something. It had this enormous index. It had critical essays. And most people said, this thing is unreadable. And Wilson wrote this review, and it kind of it criticized different parts of the translation. And for Nabokov, that felt like, you know, well, he's he thinks he knows Russian better than I do. And so he then talked about, he, he was like at a dinner party and he made Wilson read some lines aloud in Russian. And <laughs> Edmund Wilson had been working hard on his Russian for years, you know, trying to, to get up to speed because he loved Russian literature so much. And Nabokov claimed later that he, after he had pronounced like six words, everybody at the party was laughing so hard that he couldn't go on because he, he didn't know how to pronounce even the first couple of words that he tried to say. <sighs> so uh, on the one hand, it's easy for Wilson to look really bad, right? He's sort of 
trying to second guess a Russian novelist about his knowledge of Russian. And Nabokov was now by now famous for Lolita. And he, so he's sort of set up to be the perfect person to translate. You know, he can write in English. He can write a, a, a classic novel in English and he's Russian is his mother tongue. And so if, if he can't translate Pushkin, who can, but to be fair to Wilson, there were big problems with this translation. He was using these words that really don't exist in English. And so his insistence on using them ended up making the poem almost impossible for an English reader to read, which is not the point of translation, but it was like, here's some examples. He used, instead of curved, mm-hmm. like a curved knife, he would say a curvate knife. <sighs> and he'd say, the tomcat washed his muslet with his paw. Or <sighs> instead of remember, he would say, rememorate. And instead of comfort, he would say, molitude. And <sighs> sand, another one was agrestic view, views, which nobody really knows what he meant by that. And so... You know, I think Wilson probably, it was probably fair for Wilson to criticize this, but I think history kind of ended up siding with Nabokov that Wilson was was the guy, the critic who thought he was so smart, he thought he knew Russian better than a famous author who was born in Russia. Yeah. And it, it was kind of too bad they had had this, this beautiful friendship where, you know, their early letters are are uh, Vladimir trying to convince Bunny to go butterfly collecting with him and <laughs> all of this. And then by the end, they were, you know, savaging each other in the press. And But I gave it a lot of points because it was all about how to translate. Whatever personal things they had, uh, pros and cons of their personal relationship, they ended up falling out over how to translate the, the great Russian poet Pushkin. Yeah, I didn't know about this feud. I mean, it, you know, I I know the figures, and I guess something I felt as I was looking at the feuds on my list is, you know, I couldn't help cheering for one person unequivocally <laughs> over someone else. And sometimes it's because I just like their writing more. Right. Sometimes it's because I just feel like their writing matters right. to history, to literary history. Right. Yeah. You don't want to see the the better author. You don't want to see them get taken down. Yeah. I actually, I found myself rooting more for whoever was uh, least snobbish or at least, you know, I didn't mind seeing a great author take a few shots if they had been lording it over somebody else. Yeah. I mean, I, for my number two, I went with, I mean, I could have gone with a, a number of different things, but basically the theme I was focusing on was banal book reviews Mm. and how book reviews have now become or probably in the last 10 years have become like film reviews Mm -hmm. where there's no criticism there's just summary right and it's become acceptable to reveal tons of stuff in the book which Mm -hmm. book reviews 50 years ago never did Um, and often the book reviews are not by critics, but by fellow authors. Mm-hmm. And so you have a lot of, you know, kind of back scratching. And yeah. the fact that they're going to rub shoulders with each other, they, you know, they write a bland, a banal review. And so 
that's why I liked the the Dale Peck versus Rick Moody. Oh, yeah. Feud. I was wondering if you were going to pick that. In case people don't know it, uh, Dale Peck did a review for the New Republic of a, a Rick Moody memoir called The Black Veil, a memoir with digressions. And um, if people don't know Dale Peck, he, he, he's a very good writer. He, he teaches in a number of MFA programs. He started the review by saying, Rick Moody is the worst writer of his generation. <laughs> and, and wasn't wasn't the Black Veil about like his his depression and his family's history of depression? And how his family <laughs> had maybe come over on the Mayflower or oh. something ridiculous like this. And right. he was tying it all together with like his, I think he was trying to tie his depression with the state of America or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, you know, what Dale Peck had done was he read all of Rick Moody's novels, hmm. which that alone you know, shows the commitment Dale Peck has right. to book criticism. Yeah. Um, and he, what he took umbrage with is that he found that Rick Moody was talented, but he always took the easy way out. Right. In his writing. And I've never read Rick Moody. You know, friends who've read him and really like him say he's incredibly readable and he spins a good yarn. Films based on his books, have been big hits like Ice Storm. And he sold better than... he, he, he it, it, Over the years, he's, he, his books have sold better than Dale Peck's books. Mm-hmm. So I guess a lot of people felt like this was an attack on the literary establishment right. by an outsider. <laughs> it's a great first line for a review. Yeah, I mean, it it really was eye-opening. I remember when it came out, it it just seemed so shocking. But then he also, he backed it up. He he had his reasons for it, and he also included that paragraph. You know, he knew what he was doing. He sort of said, it gives me no, I don't know, the second line is something like, gives me no comfort to say this, but I've reread all the books and have come to this conclusion or something. So, Yeah, I mean, and then I also like this pick because years later they made up And at a reading, they staged kind of like a, you know, like an anthropological ritual where Moody hit him, hit Dale Peck in the face with a pie, (laughs) (laughs) which, which I've actually done. I, I, I had a friend who, um, he was in his forties at the time, but he told me that in college, one of the happiest moments in college was on his birthday. Someone had thrown a pie in his face. Really? And so, um, that made him happy to get hit with a pie. Cause he, all the attention was lavished on him. And he just, <laughs> he's a very vain person. And he just loved that moment when he was hit. It was his birthday party and everyone had sung oh. happy birthday to him. And then yeah. someone threw a pie in his face. So now flash forward to him in his 40s and we're working late in an office and a, a fellow colleague and I decided to, that we'd get a piece of cake. Yeah. And we called him into our office and I threw it in his face and I mashed the pie into his face. I also was feeling <laughs> hostile toward him because he was making me work hard. Right. And the cake peeled off his face, fell onto the ground with his glasses, with the <laughs> le- the legs of his gl- eyeglass frame sticking out. 
and he was laughing and he just had you know just this childish delight he loved it yeah and i was like my worst fear you know (laughs) i i i hate the idea that people would be laughing at me and that i would have pie in my face and i mean i'd almost rather fall down a flight of stairs but uh, you know i was thinking it it really is a cathartic thing because it's so rare (laughs) yeah that's true I mean, most of us will go on living our lives and die without having had the pleasure of throwing a pie in someone's face. Uh, the pleasure of throwing one? Yeah. Yeah, but you found someone who took pleasure in receiving. <laughs> Amazing. And Dale yeah. Peck apparently didn't mind, uh, I don't know, did he, was it yeah. for charity or something? Or just to just to let Rick Moody... I guess they, but they both thought it was amusing. And, you know, that... I'll bring. I'll talk about this later on, but it, it just it, it shows you that some of these literary feuds. It's about literature. Mm. You know, it's it's ultimately elites arguing. Mm-hmm. Yes, I I get into it, and I think it's interesting. But you know, so, there's a part of me that just thinks you, you guys are all being pretty silly. Right. <laughs> right. Speaking of which. I'm going to take my number two, which is Norman Mailer and Gore Vidal. <laughs> and they <laughs> were, good. yeah, they're both great feuders. I just watched a whole movie about Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley, and it's it's fascinating to see the two of them trading yeah. insults in real time. They're so quick and so yeah. funny, and it seemed like so much was at stake in the Cold War. But Vidal also had a, a feud with Truman Capote, Norman Mailer had a feud with Truman Capote, too, and, and Norman Mailer stabbed his wife, and there's that clip of him trying to beat the actor in the movie he was directing with a hammer. I don't know if you've ever seen that. What's his yeah. name? Rip Torn, I think. He also had a feud with Michiko Kakutani, which I didn't know, yeah. but he, he called her a one-woman kamikaze, <laughs> which uh, is nice. a, a phrase, yeah, sort of a Japanese-tinged, it's very Mailer-esque to kind of go after a female and and to to throw in kind of an ethnic dig. Uh, Mailer and Vidal hated each other. I think it's fair to say that Vidal was almost like you couldn't build someone who would be more designed to get under Mailer's skin and that Mailer in those years when he was sort of weirdly violent and masculine and homophobic and and he's so competitive and he he was turning, you know, he's all hopped up on benzedrine or whatever he was taking and he was sort of he was always running around accusing people of things and attacking things and here's the writers i'm gonna punch in the face and later in his life he became kind of sensitive and seemed very reasonable but he also always seemed like he kind of had a a screw loose a little bit and vidal was a perfect foil with his patrician demeanor and his wit and his 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 kind of fearlessness. And then they were both best-selling authors, and later Vidal said, yeah, it was always, whenever I was on the cover of Time magazine, Mailer would attack me because he had to have his swig of PR. <laughs> Their feud, it probably began early on, but it really heated up when Vidal reviewed one of Mailer's books, and it was uh, Prisoner of Sex was the book, and, and Vidal said, reading this was comparable to three days of menstrual flow. Which Oof. also seems, yeah, for Mailer, that's like the, you know, quite an insult. And then he compared, he compared Mailer to Charles Manson for good measure. <laughs> <laughs> so they were waiting. They got invited to go on the Dick Cavett show together, uh-huh. 
And I don't know if you've watched any clips of the old Dick Cavett show, but the people would go on and they would sit there for an hour and they would they would have these long conversations. And so, but these guys were in the green room waiting to go on, and Mailer headbutted Gore Vidal. Nice. And then they got out on the show, and Mailer later he admitted that he had been drinking, but he he kept referring to his greater intellect. And he was taunting everyone. And there was a third guest on there, Janet Flanner, who finally announced that she had become very, very bored with the discussion and told <laughs> Mailer, uh, you act as if you're the only person here. <laughs> and then Mailer moved his chair away from the other guests and, uh, you know, like to say, yeah, maybe I am the only person here. And Cavett joked that, quote, perhaps you'd like two more chairs to contain your giant intellect. <laughs> and then Mailer said, I'll take the two chairs if you'll all accept finger bowls. And Cavett said he didn't understand that. I don't know what he meant by that. I don't know if he was trying to say you're all a feet and you need, you know, something for your dainty fingers. Or if he was saying your, your intellect would only fit in a finger bowl. I don't know what, what that meant. And Cavett said he didn't understand the joke. And then Mailer said, why don't you look at your question sheet and ask your question and Cavett responded, why don't you fold it five ways and put it where the moon don't shine? <laughs> so Cavett had apparently had enough as well. So then six years later, Mailer saw Vidal and he threw a drink at him and then punched him. And Vidal, Vidal was lying on the ground and he said, as usual, words fail him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Which is great. And then they, you know, they, they fought and they exchanged all these terrible letters and everything. And then they did have kind of a nice exchange of letters in the mid 80s when uh, I think Mailer had sort of softened by then. But a very public feud, a very uh, full of insults to one another. I always felt like Vidal always got a little bit better of Mailer because he wasn't writing from such a position of intensity and insecurity the way that Mailer was. But I don't know. Some people will probably say that that Mailer gave it out as good as he got as well. So it was uh, it's a fun one. I mean, this is what I was trying to trying to find out with some of these feuds. It's like, well, what what exactly did they what were they arguing about? They just didn't like each other's writing, or they didn't like the the, the look on their faces. Like, yeah. what? I think that was kind of it, and that's why I meant that it <laughs> it seemed like in the twentieth century, you know, there there were very few outlets. That's the other thing. You know, mm-hmm. and I think there's one coming up that it sounds like you and I both have on our list where the one guy in particular, he's really from an era where maybe there's one or two publications that kind of make the taste of they're the tastemakers for your novel. Mm-hmm. You know, so you spend three or four years writing a novel and then the New York Times or the New York Review of Books or maybe a a handful of other outlets have a really influential reviewer. And, you know, these books were only selling 20 or 30,000 copies and they're really being written for prestige anyway. And right. so if if somebody is mocking your work, uh I think it's it feels like you you want to challenge them to a duel or something. <laughs> I guess along those lines for number 3 I picked uh Colson Whitehead and Richard Ford. <laughs> which uh Yeah. It's, um, I guess, Whitehead <sighs> reviewed A Multitude of Sins by Richard Ford. And he uh, he really kind of, you know, didn't hold back. And um, 
Richard Ford saw him at a Poets and Writers magazine party and uh, spit on him. And I thought this was the best part of the feud. Whitehead said afterward, this wasn't the first time some old coot had drooled on me, and it probably won't be the last. But I would like to warn the many other people who panned the book that they might want to get a rain poncho in case of inclement Ford. <laughs> yeah, that's one where Whitehead clearly won that feud. Yeah, and I had heard, I mean, I love the sports writer. But I've tried to read some other Richard Ford, and I, 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 I mean, I hate to say this about a writer, but I, I, I do think he's a one-book person. And, mm. uh, but apparently he used to uh, take his book reviews, take reviews uh, people have written about his books, to back to his porch in his country house, and he had a shotgun. He'd throw the review into the air, <laughs> and um, he would blow away the, the review. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I think that alone makes him so dislikable. <laughs> I mean, I, I, don't, yeah. I don't, I mean, he's a handsome guy. He, he, I love the sports writer, but that anecdote just, just really, I mean, I, I don't know what to say other than it sounds like something really moronic. Yeah. And it's, it's a little hard not to read any racial elements into the story. I, I don't know uh, enough about Richard Ford to to know too much, but, you know, he, I mean, the Whitehead's review, so I went and looked that up. Yeah. And he had said that the characters in Ford's uh, book were interchangeable, friendless, upper-middle-class white men engaged in adulterous affairs. And then the review concluded, quote, these stories placed back-to-back start to show their strings, although Puppet Master is perhaps not the way Ford would describe himself. When asked last year by the Kenyan Review what kind of relationship he has with his characters, Ford replied, Master to slave. Sometimes I hear them at night singing over in their cabins. And then Whitehead says, singing. So that's what that was. It sounded like whining. (laughs) And so you had what I thought actually was the second best part of that feud with, with Whitehead's response. I thought the best part was that Ford had waited for two years and then (laughs) he sees him at a party and he says, I've waited two years for this. You spat on my book. And then he spat on him, which is just incredible. And then this is my favorite part of the, of the feud. He said, you're a kid. You should grow up. Which, if you spit on someone, I don't think you get to say, I don't think you get to call them a kid. I mean, that's, uh, I don't know. You know, my kids have been in preschool. I I expected all of the preschoolers to fully understand that they were not to spit on one another. Well, I guess that, you know, points to the fact that this all happened in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And... At the time, Whitehead had won the Whiting Award for the Intuitionist and mm-hmm. was an up-and-coming writer. And now, I think he just won the MacArthur and his uh, latest book, Underground Railroad, as a bestseller. It's an Oprah pick. And you can make the argument that he his legacy is, is, is going to be bigger than Richard Ford's. Yeah. But back yeah. then, it wasn't. But Ford would be someone who would be sensitive to that that he was being 
ushered off the stage by a newer generation. And, and he also, he was the guy I was referring to, alluding to earlier, that he, yeah. I remember it really bothered him when newspapers stopped carrying reviews of books on their own. Mm-hmm. And he, I think he really was from that era where, you know, how your book was portrayed. I mean, now we have Amazon reviews and blogs and, and Twitter. And, you know, there's all of these ways for for people's voice to get out there. I mean, what is one negative review from, you know, The Atlantic when you might have 500 reader reviews at Amazon? Okay, so since you mentioned Oprah, I'll go to my number three. Uh-huh. which is Jonathan Franzen and Oprah. <laughs> Franzen and, and Jennifer Weiner. I've talked about that on one of our other shows, I think, where I was talking about literary duos. But Franzen and Oprah, this one just kind of makes me sad. It's it's. It, there was such a moment in the 90s when Oprah started her book club, and mm-hmm. it felt like people had stopped reading literary fiction, you'd hear all these authors like Saul Bellow and Philip Roth, and they'd be saying how, you know, the sales just weren't there anymore and and people had kind of moved on and the novel was was not as important as it once was. And then suddenly Oprah started up her book club and everything changed. And all of these authors started talking about, well, you know, maybe I'll be able to to buy that house after all if Oprah chooses my book. And because she would choose a book and it would make it would sell 500,000 copies. And uh, people were saying, you know, it's worth over a million dollars to the author to have Oprah choose your book. And it wasn't just that it was suddenly a, a bestseller. It was that people, it was opening the door to people who weren't necessarily going to buy literary fiction. Otherwise, you know, it was a whole new audience. And so then maybe they would go out and if they liked the book, they would go out and buy other books that the person had written and and books by their friends. And, you know, it was it was just this it was this really exciting development, mm-hmm. the Oprah Book Club. And she chose, you know, pretty good books. Tony Morrison and Bernard Schlink and you know, there were a lot, Joyce Carol Oates and there were a lot of selections that were uh very respectable. And then uh and there were some who were Really good books, and but they were obscure authors like that guy, uh, Wally Lamb. And so he went from you know, toiling away in obscurity to national bestseller overnight. There was kind of a downside, which is, you know, she had to frame her television show and she'd go to the author's house and she'd follow him around. And, you know, she looks for the things that Oprah likes to look for, like people's personal struggles being overcome or something particularly quaint or a, a kind of made-for-TV moment. And Franzen, so then she takes Jonathan Franzen and his book, The Corrections, and he, in my opinion, just completely bungles the whole process where he, every time he turned around, he was insulting somebody new and trying to dig himself out of this hole, and he he would just dig himself further and further in. And it just became clear that he just thought he was too good for Oprah. And so he he kept saying, you know, well, this isn't really in keeping with the high art literary tradition. And I'm upset that I have this Oprah book club sticker on my book because that's not the way things are done. And people said, well, you know, there's 
lot of these books will have movie tie-ins and they'll have a movie poster on the book practically. And he said, yeah, but that's not for the first edition. The first edition is supposed to be about the author's name and the title of the work and, and it shouldn't be about Oprah. And so finally Oprah had had enough and, or the people who run Oprah's show had had enough and said, okay, well, you can, you know, we'll still select your book. We're not going to unselect it, but we don't want you to be on the show. You don't need to, to stoop so low as to, as to appear on our show. And then there were all of these people. There was sort of this outcry from authors who were saying, we're not all as bad as Franzen. We're not all, like, we don't hate Oprah's readers because they like to watch shows like Oprah and they don't read as much as, you know, some professor who's sitting in the in an English department somewhere. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, how ungrateful can you be? She's just made you you know, an estimated $1.5 million in additional royalty, uh, royalties. And for that, you, you know, you just trash her and her viewers. And, and here's a couple of quotes. I mean, these are, um, two guys who I think are, are pretty well established as high art literary types. Uh, Lewis Lapham, who was the editor of Harper's magazine, and he said, Franzen is a guy from the country who shows up at court wearing the wrong shoes. Uh, it was part of the avant-garde literary tradition that came out of the 20s that the writer was this genius in whose presence one behaved oneself, that a hush fell over the room. It still had some force through the 1960s, but now the garret is a thing of the past. A good writer is a rich writer, and a rich writer is a good writer. And Harold Ooh. Bloom, of all people, said he would be honored to be invited by Oprah. And he Mm -hmm. said, it does seem a little invidious of him to want to have it both ways, to want the benefits of it and not jeopardize his high aesthetic standing. And Mm -hmm. then another another author who had been chosen, Andre de Boos the third, said, the assumption that high art is not for the masses, that they won't understand it and they don't deserve it, I find that reprehensible. Is that a judgment on the audience or on the books in whose company his would be? It is so elitist, it offends me deeply. And so Franzen, of all the things, you know, he could have said, uh, so then Franzen came out and said that he didn't like book clubs at all. Anyway, uh-huh. <laughs> he said, book clubs treat literature like a cruciferous vegetable that could be choked down only with a spoonful of socializing. And it just, uh, it seemed like, well, you know, do you even like people? Like, that's just that's sort of all the right. question that he was raising. Okay, go ahead. All right, so let me defend Franzen. <laughs> so okay. in um his essays how to be alone he talks about the whole oprah book club visit because mm-hmm. she at once you're picked she accompanies you and does it like a video montage right for the, her show and she so walks she, around your house and she she yeah she visits you at your office and that kind of stuff well she doesn't actually do the visit Someone else visits, but um, they they go to his house, and his father had died. His father had died, I think, like a week ago. Mm. And so they go to this house, and they say, like, you know, there's the house that you were raised. You know, your did your father like this porch? And he's like, uh, okay, like this is a little forced, but yeah, my father liked the porch. And they were like, sit on the porch, and you know, maybe you could say something about your father. And he's like, uh, okay. And then they go, like, here's the lawn. You used to run down the, I used to leave the house this way, running down, you know, toward the street. And there's this beautiful tree. 
And what's this tree about? And he was like, um, you know, my dad planted it. And they were like, oh, that's perfect. All right, so stand next to the tree <laughs> and talk about your dad. And he's like, I'm not going to talk about my dad again. And they were like, well, talk about how this tree means something to you. And he's like, well, I just told you what the tree, what, what it means. And they're like, can you get closer to the tree? Can you lean on the tree? And they basically did what any TV show does and what some of us, including myself, hate about TV. And he wouldn't play. And they said, if you don't do this, you can't be on the show. And his response was, I don't want to be on the show. I'm not going to be like, you know, your plaything. I'm not going to pretend. And they, they, I think they at one point they asked him if he felt tears welling up, you know, thinking about his dad and the tree. And he was like, no. <laughs> Could they? No, this is absurd. Yeah. Do you, you feel know? tears welling up? Well, could you possibly shed a few tears for us here yeah. while the cameras are rolling? And, you know, when I read that essay, I thought that, okay, there are a couple of things I really, really dislike about Franzen and how he handled Oprah. But then there are a couple of things that I really hate about TV and Oprah represents this. Right. Which is packaged emotion, spoon fed emotion, um, simplistic emotion. Yeah. Well, and the producers, it's not genuine. Yeah. It's like the producers are figuring it out. And and, I mean, I, I hear what Bloom's saying, but here's the reality that no one wants to talk about. I mean, I didn't hear friends and say this, but I've thought this many times. Is that you see a show like The Voice? Yeah. And why do I not watch the show? Because there is a part of me, if I'm going to be honest, that thinks it's not intellectual. <laughs> I mean, and why am I looking for something intellectual from TV? I don't know. I mean, I'm, the same reason why I'm looking for something intellectual when I have a conversation. And so there are these standards that I think people are not honest to themselves about. And here Franzen was being very honest because if you're trying to be James Joyce, you don't want Oprah Winfrey's okay. I mean, I think that I think a lot of people who want to be James Joyce would agree with that. I think had she picked Dave Foster Wallace he probably would have had a similar reaction. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, it, I, I feel like he did, he did certain things incorrectly. He had well, he, he could he have, I mean, if, if that's his stance, he could have said, well, don't send anyone out to my house because yeah. I'm, I'm James Joyce and I'm not going to be on the show because I know how television works and, I'm yeah. not going to I'm going to take it on my own terms and that if that means you're not going to pick my book then fine. I mean the good news is they made up, you know, she picked freedom. Yeah. <laughs> and or purity, I forget which one, but um they've they've made up and you know, I I think he has softened with age. He's yeah. he's 50 now and he's realized that you know, Oprah is on his side ultimately. You know, yeah. she's, she's on the side of 
people reading more and recognizing that literature can play a role in your lives no matter how busy you are. And there is an American literary landscape that is not elitist. Right. Uh, so let me, yeah, that, I mean, you made a nice defense of Franzen. I appreciate that. I don't really buy it, but <laughs> I've, uh, so here's a little speech that I wrote for Franzen. Here's something that he could have said. They gave him every chance to say something nice about Oprah and, and to backtrack, to, sorry, to backtrack, to backtrack. Uh-huh. And he could have said, I apologize if I've offended Oprah. She's popular for a reason. And through her show, she has entertained a lot of Americans and helped a lot of people with their problems. She explores serious issues, and she does so in a positive way. Uh, I was a little taken aback when she shifted into literary fiction, because for so long that's been an area that's been almost like an exclusive club, and we have our own norms and traditions that are different from what you would see on television. I'm going to try to do my best, but I hope everyone understands that it's not my my familiar habitat and... And I might be a little bit out of my element, but I hope the, you know, my audience and and my fans and Oprah's much larger audience will all try to to accept me for what I am as I try to deliver what it is that Oprah's viewers expect out of the authors who are chosen for the book club. That's not what he said. What he said was, I like Oprah for liking my book. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> come on you know it's just like you couldn't even just muster up a bit of empathy for the the millions of people watching oprah and oprah you know like it was just one thing after another was just that the people watching oprah were stupid and that oprah was part of the dumbing down of american culture and it just to me it it wasn't really you know it wasn't oprah's not jerry springer yeah her show was like a really important show to a lot of people for you know, good but, reasons. But, you know, Franzen touches upon something that's very real, which is that, you know, there is a hierarchy. You know, there is a difference between people who read Vanity Fair and The New Yorker, and there's a difference between people who read The New Yorker and The New Yorker Review of Books. Mm. And, you know, no one, Richard Ford, Colson Whitehead, will say, hey, I'd rather get a good review in Vanity Fair than the New York Review of Books. So, you know, Franzen is saying something that everyone in literary fiction, you know, believes in. Hmm. So, I, don't, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just raised that as a, as a reality that there, there are, I mean, Gertrude Stein, I found this nice quote going back to Gertrude Stein. She said, she told... She, she made fun of what Hemingway was reading, and she said, you should only read what is truly good or what is frankly bad. <laughs> so. <laughs> Something honest about that. Yeah, so like either Step Brothers or read Robert, Roberto Bolano. <laughs> you know, watch Step Brothers, which I like. I like yeah. And it's frankly bad. <laughs> Um, okay. So we are, we're going long on time. So I don't know. Should we, should we do things? Should we take one more each? Should we just quicken things up? Okay. I I wanted to do this one because it, it, it it brings up a couple of things. Um, uh, Martin Amos versus Tybor Fisher. Ooh. Yeah. So. Yeah. Amos is, he, Amos could be on here with about six different feuding partners. Yeah. Amos. (laughs) And his teeth versus <laughs> Julian Barnes and his wife. Julian Barnes, right, right. 
So, yeah. So this one, in case people don't know this, Tybor Fisher reviewed Amos's Yellow Dog and wrote, it's, it isn't bad as in not very good or slightly disappointing. It's not knowing where to look bad. It's like your favorite uncle being caught in a school playground masturbating. Yeah, right. And so what I liked about this is it, it, the review was very entertaining. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're, you know, if you're not going to write a good review, or if you can write a good review that's entertaining, then mm-hmm. that seems to be you know the highest bar. And well, and it's um, kind of like 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 that would be a really vicious thing to write about William Trevor. But Amos Amos gives it out. Amos like that's the kind of review Amos himself would have written. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and also Amos is he had his day. I think we can say this. He, yeah. You know he. Times Arrow, London Fields, Rachel Papers. I, I think we can say it's been kind of downhill from there. Mm-hmm. And so it, I, I admired Tybor Fisher, even though I've never read him and may never read him. He he was just selected as, or he was selected uh, recently as from by Granta as one of the best British writers, up and coming writers. And mm-hmm. he was he his novel Under the Frog was shortlisted for the Booker. And, but I may never read them, and I've read probably five Amos novels. But I, I, I think they're. I was glad to see Tiber Fisher attack someone whose powers are waning. I think that's it, that should be done more often. When someone who's established and has written a few good books continues to write, but the the works are badly written or poor or not interesting, people don't do enough attacking. Mm-hmm. So that's why I like I like this, you know this this feud. And then Amos shot back and called him an, a fat arse, which I thought, <laughs> you know, you know, I'm trying to teach my 12 year old daughter about, you know, ways of rhetoric and how to debate. And you know, I was telling her that personal insults are a last resort unless you can make it funny, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if fat arse qualifies. <laughs> well, here's the other one I came up. I, I saw Christopher Hutchins called John Le Carre, who had attacked his Hitch, Christopher Hitchens had attacked John Le Carre, who had attacked Salman Rushdie's satanic verses. He said Le Carre is a man who, having relieved himself in his own hat, makes haste to clamp the brimming chapeau on his head. <laughs> A little bit of a head scratcher, but <laughs> that was actually so. I'll I'll choose that as my last pick was Salman Rushdie versus John Le Carre, and Christopher Hitchens jumping in on it. Um, right. You know, it, it it had an interesting idea in it. There was an interesting theme that under underlay that one, and I was kind of surprised that John Le Carre took up this particular sword because. You know he's such a uh, he's a spy fiction author and he's he's so um, he has such a world historical uh, understanding and the idea that he would be one of the people who came out kind of against Rushdie you know there was a, a period where Rushdie supporting Rushdie was 
was just a given if you were a writer. I mean, he was sentenced to death by this fatwa. And if you cared about freedom for writers and, and their ability to write what they wanted, it just seemed like an easy choice to be on the side of Rushdie. But but Rushdie, it turned out, had had criticized Le Carre at some point, and, and Le Carre probably had a grudge. And I really like both authors. Le Carre said some things about, you know, he's basically saying, well, you knew what you were getting. If you're going to criticize a one of the world's great religions and you know what the people are going to do. You brought it all on yourself and some booksellers died. There were some bookstores that where there was some violence and, and some, some employees at bookstores had died. And I don't see you as like you, if you're, you're, you made yourself a martyr, you did this for attention and you know, that kind of thing. And Rushdie responded by calling him a dunce. <laughs> and a pompous ass. <laughs> if you read the letters they have back and forth, it is, uh-huh. you know, they're very intelligent. They're very, um, they both make points, but it, it's hard for me to to kind of see where Le Carre was. He said, even after they made up, Le Carre said, he still thinks the issue is a valid one. And he says, does that answer the larger debate, which continues to this day? Should we be free to burn Korans, mock the passionately held religions of others, Maybe we should, but should we also be surprised when the believers we have offended respond in fury? Well, I don't know, but, you know, that's kind of not the point. The point is, does Rushdie deserve to die? It's not about whether or not he'd be surprised, <laughs> you know. it's it's. I don't think Rushdie, Rushdie would maybe say he wasn't surprised or he was surprised, but the, the key question isn't whether he's surprised. The question is... You know, do you have to live in hiding for 20 years because you might be viciously murdered because of a book that he wrote? Anyway, let's uh, let's run through some that we didn't pick. Uh, apparently, H.G. Wells and Henry James yeah. wrote a series of letters attacking each other. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I didn't look into it too much, but I, I think at one point, Wells called Henry James a hippopotamus. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought it was amusing. <laughs> That's pretty good. I had the one I was going to take next before you you enticed me into the Salman Rushdie and John Le Carre was the um, Proust fought a duel. Oh. Did you ever hear about that? No. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. There was really? a, a an editor who had critic or a critic who had criticized one of Proust's early books before he wrote Remembrance of Things Past. Mm-hmm. And he implied that Proust was having an affair with uh, Lucien Daudet. Mm-hmm. And this was an era when homosexuality was illegal and you could be blackmailed and you could be arrested. And it was like two years after Oscar Wilde had been sentenced to prison in England. So Proust challenged him to a duel, which he might have had to do to defend himself and his reputation, I guess, that he couldn't let that go by. But the interesting thing about the duel is all the people who were involved with it wound up being characters in the book. You know, like the the woman who had drawn the illustrations for the book became Madame Verderan. Right. Proust second, who was there, became one of the key characters in the book. And and the guy who wrote the introduction, Anatole France, was uh became uh Bergat, the character Bergat. And the guy who uh had criticized him and the guy he fought the duel with was himself a flamboyant homosexual, but he viewed himself as a different type of homosexual. He was a more manly homosexual because he preferred 
sailors and street boys to the <laughs> kind of uh, uh, feet men that Proust apparently preferred. But the but this guy, he wore rouge on his cheeks and bosom-enhancing corsets and <laughs> henna in his mustache. He was sort of an interesting person to fight a duel with over this, but he ended up becoming uh, the Baron uh, de Charlus in the book. I love that. The other thing I love about the story is that Proust... Apparently, the biggest thing on his mind was he wanted to make sure that the duel didn't start before noon because he, <laughs> because he was, would have such a hard time getting up early enough for it if it started, <laughs> if it started too early. Uh, I also had Amos and Julian Barnes on my list. I had V.S. Naipaul and Paul Theroux, which is a good literary feud. I had A.S. Byatt and Margaret, Margaret Drabble, the two sisters who were kind of too close and had a feud. Uh, Rimbaud and Verlaine, the Tom Wolfe against the Irving, Updike, and Mailer. <laughs> so that was my list. Any others on yours? Uh, not really. Sm- small things like, you know, Jennifer Egan, like stuff that I, 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 oh, yeah. I, I didn't even know about this, but uh, I guess Jennifer Egan had to apologize for making fun of Chicklet. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was a, uh, and there was a famous one, uh, Lillian Hellman and... Uh, oh, Mary McCarthy. Yeah, yeah. where she said, uh, Mary McCarthy said she's, she's, everything she writes is a lie, including the words and and the. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess I also had Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and Turgenev on here, too. It was another uh, a, sort of a three-way feud. Yeah, that that was interesting, the way that a feud would begin between two people and people would jump in and take sides. <laughs> it, it it made me think that um, writers really don't know how to handle themselves in public. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's probably true. And the stakes seem so high to them, you know? Yeah. That's the other thing. It's great. Okay, well, uh, thanks for joining me on this edition of the History of Literature podcast devoted to great literary feuds. Thanks, Jack. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike Palindrome for joining us. You can follow Mike's doomed quest on Twitter at LiteratureSC. Doomed quest... To recommend a book a day for 10 years. He has no idea what he's gotten himself into, or at least that's how it looks to me. He's nowhere near 3,650. I think he's somewhere around 200. And he's running out of steam, in my view, but head over there and wish him luck anyway. You can find more of our back episodes on historyofliterature.com, or you can contact me at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com J-A-C-K-E wilsonauthor at gmail.com or you can visit our Facebook page and leave a comment there or as always write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts I'd love to hear from you send me an email or leave me a comment I heard from a longtime listener that his family a great baseball family is now devoted to the poem Little Willie thanks to our episode on dad poetry. You may recall that my father knew two poems while I was growing up. The Passing of the Backhouse by James Whitcomb Riley and Little Willie 
by some unknown genius. He could recite Little Willie from memory. My father could, and so could I. And so can I. Little Willie took a chance, caught the ball, but lost his pants. He's out, cried the team with a cheer, and so was Little Willie's rear. So there we go. My great contribution to the world of letters is to revive some interest in the poem Little Willie. You're welcome, literature. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>